The following sermon was delivered during morning worship at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith every Sunday on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And now, here is our guest preacher for today's service. The Reverend Dr. Agnes W. Norfleet is senior pastor of Bryn Mawr Presbyterian Church in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. A graduate of Davidson College and Union Presbyterian Seminary in Richmond, Virginia, Agnes also holds a Doctor of Ministry degree in Bible and Preaching from Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia. Ordained in 1987, having served churches in Atlanta and Columbia, South Carolina, Agnes calls herself a prenatal Presbyterian, and by that she uh, tells us her mother and father both worked in Presbyterian churches. Agnes' family includes her marvelous husband, Larry, who's seated right there. Wave to us, Larry. Hi, Larry. Larry is an architect, and he works with Project Home, a Philadelphia nonprofit working to alleviate homelessness in that city. Together, Agnes and Larry have two accomplished sons, James and Winston. When I was called to Trinity Presbyterian Church in Atlanta, Georgia, almost 20 years ago, Agnes was the first pastor in that fair city to welcome me. In Agnes, I quickly found a reliable friend, a wise pastor, and one of the smartest, funniest, most perceptive voices in the constellation of Presbyterian preachers. I value her perspective so highly and am thrilled that she has returned to this pulpit again. Let's give a warm Fifth Avenue welcome to Dr. Agnes Norfleet. And now let us prepare our hearts and minds as we continue to worship God. Thank you, Scott, for that warm introduction and the invitation to worship with you this morning. I've long admired this great church and your vital ministry in this dynamic place. I also appreciate how you have become the spiritual home of some of the young adult children of Bryn Mawr Presbyterian Church who live and work here in New York. And a number of your former members are members and leaders of my congregation at Bryn Mawr. I'm also grateful that my own ministry has been nurtured by my friendship with your pastor Scott since our days of serving congregations in Atlanta many years ago. Today, it is good to be here among you and to have the privilege of gathering us all around a word from above. So as we prepare our hearts and minds to hear God's word for us this day, join me in prayer. Let us pray. Holy God, you speak and worlds are created. You speak and the church arises as a living body. You speak and we are transformed to be your hands and feet, the heart and voice of the body of Christ in the world. So speak to us now through these ageless words of comfort and encouragement that we may find courage to be faithful to our calling 
as disciples of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Fair warning before I read this text. Psalm 90 is the source of a favorite hymn of many, Our God, Our Help in Ages Past, and it contains some of the most comforting affirmations in the Bible. But between our general familiarity with its opening and closing images, we encounter more language about God's anger and wrath than progressive Presbyterians are accustomed to enjoying. So let me give you a hint for interpreting this language in our hearing. Pondering the reality of human frailty and finitude, the psalmist is wondering if our limitations are the result of God's anger. It is more of a projection on the part of the psalmist than a proclamation about the nature of God. So with that in mind, may we tune our hearts to hear the good news from Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn us back to dust and say, turn back, you mortals. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, or like a watch in the night. You sweep them away, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are consumed by your anger, by your wrath we are overwhelmed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your countenance. For all our days pass away under your wrath, our years come to an end like a sigh. The days of our life are 70 years, or perhaps 80 if we are strong. Even then their span is only toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger? Your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. So teach us to count our days, that we may gain a wise heart. Turn, O Lord, how long? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love so that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad as many days as you have afflicted us and as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be manifest to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and prosper for us the work of our hands. Oh, prosper the work of our hands. This is the word of God for the people of God. Every once in a while, we come across a fragment of a script from another era, and it is almost haunting how relevant it feels in the present day. 
The French philosopher Voltaire had a wit and wisdom that transcends his moment as a figure of the 18th century enlightenment. He posed an intriguing question in the form of a riddle that I believe preoccupies much of our consciousness today. Voltaire asked, of all the things in the world, what is the longest and the shortest, the swiftest and the slowest, the most divisible and the most extended, the most neglected and the most regretted, without which nothing could be done, which devours all that is little and ennobles all that is great. And then he gave this simple answer, time. We are well acquainted with this paradox of time. If we are waiting in a long line, if we are anxious for the doctor to call with test results, or yearning for a college acceptance letter to arrive in the mail, then the passage of time lasts way too long. However, if we are rushing to get somewhere, have an unreasonably lengthy to-do list, or find ourselves up against a tight deadline, then time speeds by and comes up short you good people have your own definition of time passing more quickly than elsewhere in a New York minute. And when we expand our musings regarding the passage of time from the personal to the more general concerns about things like the upcoming presidential election, or sheer panic can erupt over the times we are in. We yearn for time to give us a chance to transform, heal, repair, rebuild, and open upon a brighter tomorrow. Depending on our momentary perspective, time is both the longest and the shortest, the swiftest and the slowest, the most neglected and the most regretted, Indeed, I typed time management as a subject into the Amazon book search engine and over 50,000 titles can be found, including an entire section on time management for kids. Long gone are the days, it would appear, when children spend hours just playing, hanging out with friends, and taking flight in their imaginations. Forty years ago, in 1979, a child was deemed ready for the first grade if she were six years old, had two to five permanent teeth, could tell a school crossing guard her address, could stand on one foot with her eyes closed for 10 seconds, could ride a small two-wheel bicycle, and could count eight to 10 pennies correctly. Just 40 years later, 
A checklist for the first grade in one public school includes the ability to identify and write numbers to 100, count by twos to 20, and by fives to 100, interpret and fill in data on a graph, read all kindergarten level sight words, and form complete sentences on paper using phonetic spelling. No wonder there is a market targeting time management books for children. And sadly, during the last Christmas shopping season, we learned that if you want one of those books the very next day, and I am guilty of checking that box, we can put people's lives at risk because of the pressure placed on subcontracted truck drivers to meet our need for speed. What did Voltaire say? Time devours all that is little and can ennoble all that is great. In this season of high anxiety about both the urgent quick passing of hours and the slow-moving length of days, how can we ennoble the great gift of time itself? The psalmist gives answer as if praying on our behalf in this moment of history by asking God, so teach us to count our days that we may gain a wise heart. Psalm 90 puts our worry about the passing of time in a theological context that may be more beneficial than any book on time management. The psalm begins with strong affirmations about God, the creator who transcends time, proclaiming, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations, from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. It culminates declaring ageless and comforting attributes to describe God who steps out of eternity to enter finite existence of humankind with compassion, steadfast love, glorious power, and favor. In the intervening verses, the psalmist is utterly realistic about the human experience of time passing by. Our years seem fleeting. They are quickly swept away. We can feel guilty and regretful about how we have spent our days when they are soon gone. And we wonder if our limitations are the result of God's displeasure and wrath. These days, frankly, I welcome some of God's displeasure and wrath. I just don't want it directed toward me, you know what I mean? When the human lifespan is set upon the stage of God's everlasting life, we can feel very small and insignificant. 
Even so, our hastening years still matter a great deal, held as they are within the eternity of God's steadfast love. The very fact that we live within God's grand drama is precisely what gives our transitory nature meaning and significance. The movement of the psalm itself encourages this confidence from its opening affirmation about the eternal, everlasting nature of God through the stark acknowledgement of human finitude and limitations, to its culminating prayer for practical wisdom about how to gain a wise heart. According to biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann, a wise heart is one that discerns the purposes of God. A wise heart recognizes that human beings have power and freedom and responsibility. And a wise heart employs these attributes in trust and obedience to the living God. God's dwelling place is not about geography but about relationship. And the psalmist's closing petitions show us to number our days with wisdom born of that relationship. We remember that God has compassion for us. God satisfies us in the morning with steadfast love. God fills our days with gladness greater than any affliction we have endured. God's good work and power are made known to us, and God's favor rests upon us. Finally, the great God of creation, who is beyond all time, cares to prosper for us the work of our hands, to prosper the work of our hands. God's eternal presence affects and influences the daily work of our hands. How awesome is that? Twenty years ago, on the eve of the new millennium, as the clock ticked forward and the year readied to turn from 1999 to 2000, my family buried a time capsule. It was a Christmas gift from friends who were spending the first New Year's Eve with us in a brand new mountain cottage that our family built on property I inherited from my mother. The time capsule was a two-foot-long PCV pipe with one opened end that could be secured with a tightly fitting top, a metal ring, and screws. Our two sons were six and four years old. Between Christmas and New Year's, we collected some things to bury under the deck not to be opened for some time to come. 
One of our friends who gave us the time capsule recently turned 80. So we decided to dig it up this past New Year's as we celebrated her four score years and the 20th anniversary of our cottage. Each of us remembered some of what we had put in the time capsule, but none of us remembered everything. Our boys dug it up from the ground and I said, I don't remember that it was covered with all those brightly colored stickers. And our younger son, who was just four and a half when we buried it, said, that's about all I remember. (laughs) We delighted in opening the time capsule. It included a Christmas Eve bulletin and a newsletter from our church. My husband Larry's architectural drawings of the mountain house a 1996 pin of Atlanta's Centennial Olympics since we lived in Atlanta at the time, a 33-cent postage stamp, now clearly outdated, the January 1st, 2000 Newsweek magazine with a cover cartoon of Charlie Brown saying, good grief at his retirement after 50 years. Both of our children had put in a picture they had drawn and a Pokemon card, and the six-year-old had included a little suitcase ID tag with his name and address proudly printed by hand. There were photographs of our friends who gave us the time capsule and pictures of our family in front of the cottage under construction. There was a little note, and it reads... This time capsule was put together by James, Winston, Agnes, Larry, Libba, and Suzanne on New Year's Eve, 1999. Today, we went on a hike, worked a puzzle, went to the playground, worked a puzzle, had a good time, worked a puzzle, and buried this time capsule on New Year's Day, 2000. Over these 20 years, those little boys have grown to young men who are making their way in this world largely on their own. Libba and Suzanne have retired and left Atlanta to live not far from our cottage in western North Carolina. Larry and I have moved a couple of times. We survived our children's adolescence. We suffered the deaths of our parents. We've both been called to new work. And frankly, we look about 20 years older. When we dug up the time capsule, apart from the stuff that we surfaced and examined through faulty memories and curiosity, the salient reminder that came to light for me was this. Time marches on, and we grow older. We accomplish much. We make mistakes, and we endure terrible things. But the most enduring qualities of life transcend the hours and the days. Love. Family. Friendship, laughter, 
hopes and dreams and aspirations. Work for the common good, fidelity, trust, and faithfulness. A wise heart remembers God, the giver of all these precious gifts. Now, I know that most of life is not lived in a vacation home surrounded by family and friends, enjoying the recollection of a really fun holiday 20 years ago. But amid what seems like a perilous time these days, in our nation and in the world, the psalmist reminds us all, The daily work of our hands matters because our fleeting years unfold within the drama of God's gracious compassion and steadfast love. Oh God, teach us to count our days that we may gain a wise heart, a heart that discerns the purposes of God a heart that recognizes we have power and freedom and responsibility, and a heart that employs these good gifts in trust and obedience to the living God. Amen. Go now into the world in peace, and may God's steadfast love teach you to count your days and gain a wise heart. As you go, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all, and all those you love and all God's children everywhere this day and forevermore. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and provided a message of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you are in New York City, we invite you to visit our historic church and join us for worship. You will find our address, worship calendar, and other information on our website, FAPC.org. If you would like to help support this audio ministry, please text the dollar amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646 491 8331. Again, that is the amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646 491 8331. Thank you and God bless.